and welcome to the Auto Movie Podcast, the world's leading podcast about cars on YouTube and in films and talking about it with your mates. I'll admit it's a fairly thin field, but we are the leading podcast for this genre. We're also... We find, I think fairly we sure we defined this genre. Indeed. Uh, we're also, I'm happy to announce, runner-up in the 2020 Most Autocorrected Podcast Award, narrowly missing out to a podcast about senior government ministers called Total Cult. <laughs> Lifted from Space Season 2, that one, mate. You can't, oh, can't sneak that joke past me. <laughs> one of my favourites. One of my favourite gags. Yeah, I <laughs> love that joke in, in that one. Uh, what have you been watching over Christmas? Well, welcome to 2021. Um, I've watched a ton of stuff over Christmas. I've been going back watching a bunch of really classic movies. So I rewatched Titanic. And I know some of you are going to be going, that's not classic, it's rubbish. It's not rubbish, it's brilliant. Go and watch <laughs> that movie and then try and figure out how on earth they did it. How on earth they mixed all that stuff together and made it look real. It's astonishing. Um, watched A Few Good Men, which is absolutely fantastic. Watched Lost Boys. As far as TV stuff goes, um, no, we watched Queen's Gambit before Christmas. I know you've watched Queen's Gambit over Christmas, a little late, a late to the chess party. Been watching uh, the season two of The Mandalorian on Disney and have just started watching WandaVision on Disney Plus and it is weird and wonderful <laughs> and I really can't wait. And yeah, car stuff, I haven't watched a great deal, but... As we all come on to the Christmas car telly roundup uh, in a little bit, there's been a bunch of stuff, but what have you been watching? Um, Queen's Gambit as well, which I loved. I thought was absolutely brilliant. The Prestige, the Christopher Nolan film, largely because I've seen it many years ago. I watched one of these YouTube 20-minute breakdown things where they tell you all about how the story's structured. And the more you know about that film, the more you unpack it, the more brilliant it gets. I think it might be Chris Nolan's best movie. I have a copy of a 4K Blu-ray of Tenet waiting for me to have time to watch it. Ooh. I'm not sure I can convince my wife to watch it with me because I know it's really confusing. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I bought a new Blu-ray 4K player because my old one died and uh, uh, decided to reward myself at Christmas with a copy of Tenet, but I just haven't had a chance to watch it yet. But uh, yes, I think The Prestige might actually be his best movie over and above even The Dark Knight. I know we've strayed off topic a little bit, but yeah, go watch The Prestige. It's <laughs> really, really good. I have to say, over Christmas, we have had an absolute glut of car content and thank god because with lockdown and everything there's not been a whole lot else to do let's start with season three i think of car trek which is well that's it's technically it's the christmas special but yes i get what you mean it's like the third mm. car trek series they've done i think this aired just after we recorded the last podcast of 2020. Mm. Um, and in, in that week running up to Christmas, there was an episode every day. Pretty, I enjoyed this more than season two, I think. Yep. Um, I think the car choice was more interesting. Uh, they did the same trick as before, basing themselves in a location that they can then go out from, which I hope they don't do this for everyone because I think from a budgetary point of view... It gives you an environment you can control and it's probably far more cost effective than doing road trips. But I want to see road trips. Mm. The, the the going from place to place and breaking down and not being able to get there and having to do fixes on the fly, the whole going from A to B, reason for the journey, mm. is a big part of all of those Top Gear three-car challenges that they're 
affectionately mimicking so much. And by not doing it, it lessens it for me. I did still really enjoy this. I didn't come away from this wanting any of the cars, which is unusual, <laughs> well, uh, actually. Yeah, probably not uh, with that lineup. But I thought this was a very charming way to give sort of Christmas car content. And I I think that Car Trek season three, the full one, will benefit enormously from them having done sort of the season two and this more or less back-to-back or quite close to back-to-back mm. and getting more of a feel for what works because let's not forget Top Gear didn't really grasp what worked for their three presenters for quite a few series until they landed on the get them in three cars that might break down and then <laughs> set them a bunch of challenges and watch what happens. See, I have, I've been thinking about this. I've been doing actual research on the internet. And what I realised about Top Gear compared to the model of um, Car Trek, with Car Trek, it's we went out to find the most unreliable car which is kind of the always the Top Gear conceit, but it was never said that way around. It was always, what's the most you can get? What's the best Porsche you can buy for £2,500? What's the best of something? And it happens to be so constricted and narrow that they end up being crap. It's a great point, actually. I think this may be actually a hangover from their YouTube background, where it yes. is very much, I bought the worst thing in the US or I bought the cheapest most appreciated thing in the US and they haven't got away from that to give themselves the stricture of what can you get for five grand Mm. because the thing about them working exclusively in the USA is the US car market is so different to the car market in the UK for a start there is a thing called auto tempest which we don't have (laughs) But and, we know a lot know, about we, now. <laughs> we would love to have something to let you search, you know, eBay cars and pe- piston heads and classic cars and auto trader all in one place. That'd be fantastic. But I don't see it happening. Our our car market's a bit too fragmented. But they have such a wider range of used cars because it's a much bigger country, obviously. <laughs> and they also have a far better or far more permissive attitude towards modifying cars Mm. and mods not affecting the value of cars in the same way that they do in the UK and they don't have the obsession with low mileage that we have Mm. because it's a bloody big country and you're going to (laughs) rack up the miles so I I find it interesting but it's a really really well observed point that I hadn't realised that they're, they're, they're not quite aping the formula in the same way and I think also I get frustrated when you get these challenges where some people should be able to shine and some people should be able to struggle. It's one of the things that you noted in the first car trek. One of the funniest things was Ed Bolin trying to fix his car proper Clarkson style with like duct tape and a hammer. But then I think you should has you should see all of them playing up to their strengths. Get Ed like Bolin. Ed doing the review. Exactly. Ed doing the review around the track. That played to everyone's strengths and it showed everyone's weaknesses Mm. you're right those are the things that i want to see more of i think because because it gives you more of the presenter's personalities but you i i think they happened on a little bit of magic in that first car track but we have no idea how difficult it was to do behind the scenes Mm. and they get the impression very and therefore that's why they've chosen to change how they do the other two but i think they've all been successful enough with million over a million views Mm. Uh, on most episodes, I believe that there'll be more. Um, oh, I just doubt. hope that they're able to evolve the format a bit more 
still. However, there were some brilliant moments in that Car Trek Christmas special. One of my favourites might be the fleeting glance of Tyler Hoover with the Christmas lights wrapped around him. And and you kind of just get these two flashing things in the place where his <laughs> testicles might be, which was just <laughs> also weird but very funny. Also, Freddie's impression of... Um, Tyler Hoovey was just out yes. of nowhere and fantastic. Yeah. I will say as well, one other thing. Ed Bolian, if you're listening to this for some reason, next time you're in the VinWiki chair, if you are willing to do a promo for the Auto Movie podcast and say nice things about us in your honeyed voice, we will happily donate $100 to the charity or cause of your choice in return. Let us know. Comments at automoviepodcast.com. <laughs> Somehow you need a six degrees of separation to get this in Ed Bolian's ears. Wait, that sounds wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I will see what I can do. Also, over Christmas, we had the Evo Car of the Year coming to ITV in the UK in terrestrial TV, which was interesting. It was a thing that happened. It was. I I don't know the reasoning behind ITV deciding to make a film about EcoT. Um, normally, this is something that Evo magazine do themselves. If they're doing one at all, they tend to bring in one of the filmmakers they always work with. More recently, the EcoT films have just been one person on board all of the cars mm. doing a lap. And that's been crap, quite honestly. I think Steve Sutcliffe's done it a couple of years and I have the utmost respect for Steve Sutcliffe as a driver and a journalist. But I'm not really interested in the same shot in 10 different car interiors with a few shots around a circuit. That's mm. not what, I, what I'm here for in Ecoti is the road stuff and the camaraderie that you get from the storytelling of Ecoti across 28 pages of magazine or whatever, and the storyline from start to finish. And this felt like no one had told the team that they were going to be making a film, and the people making the film had no idea how to make a film about cars interesting. So I have, I have a theory, which is the TV production company, Greenlight TV, somehow, in some order, spoke to ITV, spoke to Evo, and managed to broker a shoot, effectively. So they would film it, probably for free, maybe with some payment from ITV, I don't know, and they would produce that for ITV. And they went to Evo, and Evo said, that's great. However, we've booked the track time that we need, we've booked the hotels, we've booked, you know, we know the road course, you are more than welcome to shoot around what we're doing, but that's it. You know, it's the magazine comes first and then they shoot it. And as a result, when they got to Anglesey, when they got there to really start shooting it, the production company, I don't think, had the best idea of what they were going to do. The Evo guys didn't know what the TV guys were there to do. And then it was noticeable when they got to Scotland it felt a bit more natural, it felt a bit more flowing, and it felt a bit more like they'd learnt on day one, or two or three, or however many days they were at Anglesey, and then they had another go in Scotland. And I think there are flaws in the cinematography. I think there are noticeable changes in frame rate. There's a drone shot tracking a lorry through Scotland at one point for some reason. But I think the problem is that 
both in the edit and in the direction on the day, they didn't know what the story they were trying to tell is. Because if you pitch Evo Car of the Year to anybody and say, we've got, I'm picking out the numbers here, 20 of the best driver's cars in the in the, the world that came out this year, grand total of, you know, £2 million worth of car. We're going to hit them around the track. We're going to drive them through the beautiful countryside of Scotland. We're going to find out which one is the best. Just setting that narrative in voiceover or whatever would have made a huge difference. I thought that using title cards in between the cars was lazy. (laughs) I would have done, first of all, get somebody to anchor the coverage. So get Jethro Bovingdon or Nicky Shields or somebody to sort of just stand in the pit lane and say, hi, welcome to Anglesey. This is Evo's car of the year, whatever. And then you get... Jethro, you get Henry and you get Adam Towler, who I thought came across very well. Get them all to to just drive, do the onboard stuff. Get them to sit here and say, right, next, it's the BMW M2 CS. It's the baby BMW. It's £50,000. You know, it'll do 195 miles an hour. Is this the baby BMW we've been waiting for? I think if they'd done that, put more structure around it. I think Henry notably... Outside the car looked really stiff and odd, and inside the car was lucid, and he was the, the Henry that we know and love from Carfection. And just let the whole thing flow a bit more, you know, give it some more shape, bring the audience along, have somebody to explain what's going on. It was noticeable as well that they didn't really talk about the judging. They announced the results about three times over by people standing at the side of the road. Whereas you're absolutely right, what you love about Ecote is the stories of them in the pub arguing over the you know the steering feel of a VXR two twenty or whatever VX two twenty ah pedantry you know versus whatever and that's what you want you want to be in the middle of that discussion you don't want to be sort of just getting John Barker through a window to tell you what he thinks about the steering feel of an Alpine uh, yes I I think somebody mentioned that he didn't know he was being filmed at that point. Or something along that. They didn't realise this was for TV. I think some of this was a surprise to some of the people there. That, hence, possibly why Henry looked uncomfortable out of the car on that first day. It was all a little bit student film and budgety, which, when you're used to the kind of output that these journalists and and broadcasters have put out by themselves mm. or with Evo in the past, just makes it all a little incongruous. I will say. There has never been an Ecote film, even when they did them with Sam Riley, that has matched the words of the story, that has told mm. the story. There is this feel like you just need to document a lap of every car and then you go to some nice location and show some slidey shots and, and, and so on. None of them have ever quite been able to tell the story from start to finish, including kind of going to the the people doing the judging and going, how are you feeling about the cars right now? Mm. And Because all of the Ecote issues always have this recurring mantra from year on year where people can't decide what their top tens look like. But you never get that sense in the film. The film doesn't tell the story of how the, the top ten evolves. It just gives you the cars and then gives you how they're all like, what they're all like to drive. Mm. And then a winner is announced. But you don't get the sense that you get from the story in the magazines of how that top 10 
evolves so much. I have enjoyed watching this just because, hey, you know, it's it's car content on the TV. And even though perhaps they were ambushed a little bit by, hey, you know what, you're going to be making a film. Oh, really, are we? Um, (laughs) You get that feel, even if that might not have been the case. Um, It's always nice to see Henry and Jethro on the TV and, you know, the the cars themselves is quite a good year for interesting stuff. But uh, I after this screened, I actually just stuck in Evo Car of the Year to the YouTube search <laughs> and went through and watched a bunch of them. And I have to say, my favourite clip from an Ecoti on YouTube is from 2013 when the 991 GT3 won. And it is a GoPro bolted to the side of a red GT3 whizzing up somewhere, I think, in southern France around a bunch of hairpins. And all you can hear is the red line being reached repeatedly (laughs) and the PDK gearbox going wham, wham down the gears as they break for the next hairpin. It's just one shot and it is glorious. There's something about what that shot tells you about the car that no Mm. amount of talking heads can give you and there's something in that somewhere i don't know whether or not an ecoti film could ever be made that equals the words because i grew up reading these articles and conjuring what it might be like to be on these tests in my head Mm. and you know budgets being what they are it probably isn't possible to do the film that i would love to see but i feel this was just slightly undercooked also over christmas Motorsport magazine released some footage from a film called Steve McQueen, The Lost Movie, which then aired shortly after on Sky Documentaries, I think. This caught me a bit by surprise. It wasn't something I was expecting. And it's a really, really genuinely interesting documentary about... A film that was never made. A film that was never made. It was partly made, and that's part of the appeal for this, but it was... At the time when John Frankenheimer was making Grand Prix, Steve McQueen was also trying to get a film made around Grand Prix racing. And he, there was basically a comp, like a race between the two of them to see who could launch first, who could sign up which circuits, which drivers would appear in which films and so on. And the the film kind of goes through this whole process, why the Steve McQueen one didn't get made. And it does it in a really well-structured fashion. It doesn't fawn over Steve McQueen too much. It also goes into what they did around engineering things like camera cars, which Grand Prix was famous for. This production was also doing the same thing. And they actually have footage that was found, apparently by an archivist, who put in a stock footage request and got this, I think, 35mm film of cars going around the Nürburgring Nordschleife during the German Grand Prix of that year. Which has been restored, I think. It looks sensational. There isn't that much of it because the cars could only carry so much film, they could only run for so long. And what they were doing was essentially scouting for the film. I haven't seen the documentary, but I have read the accompanying feature in Motorsport magazine. And as I understand it, Steve McQueen missed out on the role in Grand Prix. He lost it to James Garner, which meant that he then didn't talk to his friend James Garner for two years. (laughs) Uh, And possibly that may have sparked, you know, the let's go and try and make this movie or, or 
or get this movie going. Mm. Um, ultimately, Grand Prix got in front of the cameras earlier and the production company behind this movie actually cut their losses because it was clear that they weren't going to get it in cinemas before Grand Prix and they thought that they would just lose out. Mm. I think in retrospect, they might have done well to keep going, stick with it. The thing that struck me from the article, and I will watch this uh, as soon as I'm able to get hold of a copy because I don't have Sky documentaries, is that McQueen got both Sterling Moss and Sir Jackie Stewart, or then just Jackie Stewart, on his movie, two of the biggest, most talented names in Grand Prix racing. And I'd never really thought about the fact that how come they're not involved in Grand Prix? And... Oh, certainly, how come Jackie Stewart wasn't involved? Sterling Moss, by that point, had 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 his accident recovered but had enforced retirement thrust upon him. And the article does make the point that actually Sterling's actually doing filming work, hurling the car around at full chat, almost as if the accident had never happened. And there's always been that note of wonder of whether or not Sterling Moss should have waited a bit longer, but given what we know about concussion and how long it takes to recover from concussion these days, um, he might have been able to lengthen his career. But either way, I do want to see this documentary because this kind of period footage gives you an experience that just can't be matched anywhere else the kind of the film grain and the realism of it and we are so conditioned to image stabilized high definition cameras on formula one cars that while they give you a tremendous insight and tremendous clarity into what the formula one driver is doing there's a little drama missing and of course you know modern formula one cars barely move as they go round corners you can't tell what the car is doing whereas you go with on board with these and you can see far more suspension movement mm. you can you get far more of a of an idea of the driver at work so there's there's just some mega footage let's not forget as well that if you watch this footage now it's still the same circuit i mean yes the hedges have been replaced with armco but it's it's shocking it's, is it though? Is it really the same circuit? And the Nurburgring has, it's in the same place and follows the same route, but to call it the same circuit might be stretching the limits a little bit because things have been flat and every single corner has been reprofiled in some way and resurfaced like a hundred times <laughs> since this was shot. It's in the same place and it traces the same route, but I, to call it the same circuit may be stretching the truth a little bit. Fair enough. Speaking of racing drivers, I saw somebody on Twitter mention how much they'd enjoyed Fernando, the not the ABBA documentary, which if there isn't one called that, there should be, but the, <laughs> um, the documentary that follows... I watched the first episode, I think, for this podcast some time ago. I watched it... Again, and I, I kind of jumped through a few episodes because there are bits of him at Indy, there are bits of him uh, doing the Dakar, and I've, I've kind of come away with a slightly changed perspective, but not a lot, in that it's entirely focused on him. We're used to documentaries like Drive to Survive, which are very storytelling um, documentaries. This is very much the man. It is one film crew who are following... Fernando Alonso and there's a scene of him walking through an airport and he's stopping and signing autographs and doing selfies with a film crew and there's even a wide shot of the film crew just following him through an airport and I I, I read somewhere that um, in his return to racing for Renault next year he's still got this film crew with him so he'll be sitting in a debrief with his engineers 
and there's a film crew and it'll be going to the factory and there's a film crew i think there's some stuff in there that i think if you are interested in the psychology of drivers how they approach challenges how they deal with things particularly fame and i don't think a lot of us appreciate quite how famous fernando alonso actually is but it's still just too singularly focused for me there is like i say there appears to be a season two coming so that'll be kind of curious and it could possibly become the documentary that grand prix driver was always meant to be which was the how stoffel van dorn became a grand prix driver so this is almost like how to become a grand prix driver again and hopefully not a tale of how an awful engine supplier then steals all your drama and ruins your season um so yeah that'll be interesting also coming up a couple of others um great escapists which is an amazon series with uh, richard hammond and tori belecci don't know if it has anything to do with cars two of them dropped on an island and they've got to escape i've got a feeling i don't know if this is hammond's production company or whether it's a w chump and sons production but either way that could be interesting and also nothing whatsoever to do with cars mark kermode's secrets of cinema if you have an interest in cinema if you are interested in how each genre exists what its tropes are what films of that genre are like it's well worth a watch um they're in it's in the third series at the moment both the previous series are an iPlayer. Pick a genre, watch it. Fantastically accessible, knowledgeable, insightful documentaries. However, we're not going to be talking about insightful documentaries. We're going to be talking about films featuring massive superchargers. Marty, why don't you kick us off with the one that everybody probably thinks of when you say superchargers through the bonnet and they go, oh, that's a bit Mad Max. It's true, and uh, that supercharger sticking through the bonnet of the um, the Pursuit Special, driven by Mad Max, isn't hooked up to anything. <laughs> just to kind of just give away the ending, there it's not hooked up at all. It's purely for show, which is very disappointing. Uh, but anyway, yes, Chris, I think came up with a title for this and said, "Hey, you should watch Mad Max," and I went, "I've never seen Mad Max." How many times have you mentioned I've seen- Mad Max to other people? <sighs> I've mentioned Mad Max Fury Road on this podcast an awful lot. I still haven't seen that. (laughs) The only one of the Mad Max series I have seen, and even that I haven't seen all of, is some little bit of Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. And all I remember about that is it's got Tina Turner. (laughs) Fair enough. So I, I came to this quite new. Mad Max was made in 1979 by a filmmaker called George Miller, who was a doctor and had seen the results of lots and lots of road accidents come through his ER and through circuitous means ended up raising just under $400,000, I presume Australian dollars, to make a movie called Mad Max, which starts with a title card that says, a few years from now, uh, and then you're kind of dropped into this slightly post-apocalyptic world where there are biker gangs who roam the Australian outback and there is a uh, a main force patrol set of policemen who have interceptor cars which are painted an interesting shade of blue and red stripes over yellow uh, and they chase down these biker gangs and... Um, it's all a little bit apocalyptic, but this is one of the movies that kind of set that up. 
So you, you kind of look at it now with modernise and go, well, this is all a bit cheesy and, and dated, but actually that's this is the movie where a lot of that came from. The budget was so small that even though all of the main force patrol police officers are wearing leather, it's actually vinyl on everyone except Mel Gibson's character because they couldn't afford to pay for the leather. I don't know if this was Mel Gibson's first movie starring role. The story goes that he went along to the audition to support his friend and was bearing the scars of a drunken brawl the night before and was cast more or less based on that. <laughs> but I'm not sure if that's apocryphal or not, but he's he's really good in this, although he, for those of us who are used to him in American Hollywood movies, his Aussie accent is is very strong here by comparison. Before you even meet his character, though, you're kind of dropped into into the story where you've got the lawmen of the main force patrol and then lawless members of this biker gang, the Acolytes. There's a guy called the Knight Rider who ends up killing a rookie police officer while escaping from the police. He steals one of the pursuit special cars, these sort of banana yellow things, uh, and goes on a high-speed chase. And things are not looking very good for the, the main force patrol or the MFP until they call in their best driver, Mel Gibson's character, Max Rokotansky. And he chases down this guy and they end up dying in a fireball. Um, and this fuels a conflict between the MFP and this gang, the Acolytes, for the next 90 minutes or so. Max's character, or Max Rokotansky, has uh, a wife uh, who randomly plays the saxophone when she's introduced for no reason whatsoever. <laughs> it is really weird. Uh, they have a young child uh, who's only known as Sprog, which... Uh, we get as Brits, but I think the Americans really didn't understand <laughs> that slang. And when this was released in America, they had to redub all the actors, uh, all the uh, all the dialogue, and change some of the wording just so the Americans would understand what was being said. The film kind of follows the MFP trying to lock up the acolytes and then failing largely. <laughs> <laughs> Things go wrong and wrong. Uh, and then the, the captain of the MFP tells his officers they've got to do whatever they must to bring the gang down so long as the paperwork is is clean. I don't know how on earth that would be possible, but there you go. Uh, and then Max's partner gets burnt alive, and so Max goes, I've had enough of this, retires, and basically runs away with his family to try and stay safe. The biker gang catches up with him, and in the bit that... I found the most difficult to watch because I have a young family. His young family gets run over and it's horrible. Mm. Even though you don't see anything particularly, it's just, it's a scenario. It's, this is, it's gritty and brutal and, and horrible. And I can see why one on release, some reviewers found this just unremittingly depressing and nihilistic as it is. This moment is what takes Max from being Max Rokotansky to being Mad Max Rokotansky. <laughs> At which point he, he dons his genuine leather uh, <laughs> and gets a new Pursuit Special, rolling out the all-black car with a supercharger sticking out of the bonnet that we all know so well. Um, pay attention to the fact that whilst the supercharger thing goes round and round in some shots, it's not actually doing anything. <laughs> uh, pulley, that's the word I was looking for. Um, and he goes 
chasing down the acolytes and aiming to kill them all. Although there is a moment where um, they run over his body uh, and a somewhat cheesy fake arm wobbles as they're supposed <laughs> to run over and crush his arm. But uh, uh, it's okay. He he recovers enough to then get back into his car and drive like there's nothing wrong with him <laughs> and, and finish the job off. But... <sighs> I don't know. There's something about this movie that sticks in your brain after you've watched it. It is brutal and it is gritty and the stunt work is exceptional. Now, I know that going on from this, they did Mad Max 2, The Road Warrior, then the one with Tita Tina Turner in it, which I can't remember anything about. And more recently, George Miller has done um, Happy Feet, which of course had... And- <laughs> yes. And Happy Feet 2, which also had, you know, superchargers and people being run over. Pretty sure that was in it. Um, uh, Also, (laughs) we might not, (laughs) we might want to mention, he did Mad Max Fury Road, which by all accounts is one of the best action movies ever made, one of the best car chase movies ever made. And I still don't understand why neither one of us has seen it. Yeah, that's, it's a weird one, that. So we will review that in a future episode. Um, You should start doing bingo on how many times I say that. <laughs> um, Maybe not a drinking game. But the the way car chases are shot in this is quite distinct from even the 60s and the 70s gritty stuff mm. we've covered, like French Connection or uh, Bullet. There is loads of great bolt-on shots. The stunt crew appear to be up for anything you know there's 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 a scene where a pair of bikers drive into a bridge support and fly off the bikes into a, a creek and it looks like they just did that for real with their bikes following them just in the hope that the bikes didn't land on top of them there's so much practical stuff here all the car stuff is shot to make these actually quite slow cars <laughs> look as as fast as possible the editing and the, the the way these pursuits are stitched together is really remarkable the whole film is remarkable this was made for less than four hundred thousand dollars and for an enormous amount of time remained the most profitable movie ever made on a percentage basis it went on to gross over a hundred million dollars at the box office that's extraordinary it's an extraordinary achievement to do this kind of thing in Australia where there isn't a huge film industry and there certainly wasn't at the time for a first-time director who isn't someone who come up through the ranks and doing TV and film school or whatever he's a doctor <laughs> it's it's amazing to watch and for all that the story can be tough to stomach mm. if you are of a delicate disposition like I am uh, it's essential viewing for the car action now I did do some research on the cars themselves and the the main car you see is let me get this right otherwise someone will come along and correct me <laughs> for my lack of car knowledge the pursuit special the black pursuit special is a ford falcon xb gt coupe 1973 v8 interceptor or that's a mouthful or as they called on love the beast oh it's a ford xb coupe xb coupe okay <laughs> Based on a Ford Falcon GT, um, and the movie, although it came out in 1979, they had so little money they had to get an older model that they could modify. Um, It had a 351 Cleveland V8, which was the same engine that the cars had at the time, and they just bolted that sort of supercharger for show to the top, which is sad. 
at the end of the movie, they weren't making anything. It took quite a while for that $100 million mark to be reached. And so in order to pay one of the stuntmen, they just gave him the car. Wow. So it kind of sat, I think, in this this, this guy's lot until they came to make Mad Max 2, at which point they'd they'd made some money from the first one it had become a hit and so they were able to go and hunt down the car and buy it back and then <laughs> modify it for the the following movie although i still don't think the supercharger did anything the audio on this by the way is just v8 heaven if you're a mm. person that likes the sound of a lazy v8 this just it's so good for all that stuff <laughs> They had a bunch of sort of slight modifications. A lot of it is just for show, to be honest. But as a character, the car works specifically in that kind of matte black, super aggressive wheel arches style. And a lot of replicas have been made by fans of the movie. Only they do it properly with a working supercharger, (laughs) which will actually get you some power out of it. Um, And the same car has been used, I think, in certainly in Mad Max 2 Road Warrior. And again, in Mad Max Fury Road, although modified even again. Um, I don't know if Tina Turner had one in Beyond Thunderdome. (laughs) I want to make a joke about Sympathy of the Best, but I just can't think of anything original right now. (laughs) But they they, they say they modified the car with individual exhaust side pipes, although uh, they had eight of them, but only two of them were actually functional. (laughs) Of course. The car itself was created by a Melbourne-based car customizer called Graf X International, which is a great name. And like we said, it was passed on to this part-time actor and motor mechanic who's one of the stunt people, Murray Smith, uh, and that was payment for his services. And then they got it back for him and and, and pushed it onwards. But this, this is just the most Australian film, isn't it? It is really. Well, then. Even after Mad Max 2, they then sold the car intact to a wrecking yard <laughs> along with other wrecks from the movie. They didn't, there was no thought to preserving this. Wow. The car has then since been sold and sold and sold, almost scrapped, rediscovered, incorrectly restored with two giant fuel tanks in the boot and then <laughs> shipped to the US, then back to Australia and then started touring Australia and then shipped to a UK museum called Cars of the Stars until the museum closed in 2011 and then shipped back to the US and being kept in Florida uh, and then put up to sale and no idea where it is now, to be honest. And I think if uh, if it's still around, it'd probably be more disappointing because lots of the ones that are built for subsequent movies and certainly anyone who has built a replica has done a better job than the original film car. But oh, even though the supercharger doesn't work, it's still cool as hell because of that V8 rumble and because of the way the stunts are shot and the car chases are done in this movie. Because like with, I am told, Fury Road, everything is done for real and there is a team of stunt people who are game for anything. There's a shot right at the end of the movie where a bike collides with a truck and I, I'm not quite sure that that wasn't just done for real and some crazy ass stunt guy said oh no worries mate i'll climb the track <laughs> if you haven't seen it or haven't seen it recently go and revisit it again because it's a filthy little exploitation movie but with some remarkable car-based action i have to say i watched it partly because i'd never seen it and partly because we were going to talk about it and there were a few times when i nearly turned it off because it is just quite 
nasty in places. I actually watched it in three parts because I couldn't sit and watch all the way through in one go. I think the other thing that surprised me was actually how little time that Interceptor actually has in the film. Yeah, they're the little banana ones get most of the screen time, don't they? Mm. And sometimes they can look a bit rubbish and slow. <laughs> but you kind of think of it as the Mad Max car. You think of it like Chitty Chitty Bang Bang in the film or, you know, Kit or the A-Team van or something. Whereas actually, you kind of... I was there like looking at my watch going, is it in this film? Have I, have I just sent you on a wild goose chase? Is there... Is it now? Is it now? Hang on, wait, wait, when are the credits? How long's left in the... Oh, right, here we go, fine. Okay. <laughs> there is a great one shot as he goes to fetch the car out of the shadows though that's fantastic mm. but yes mad max it can be a bit of a brutal watch if you're a wuss like me and you need to break <laughs> it up with some happy feet then why not but otherwise get to it because the stunts are amazing going from an australian classic to a norwegian german co-production i'm going to be talking about a film called Asphalt Burning. Now, we've all obviously seen the Norwegian films Borning 1 and 2. Obviously. I I was telling you just about them just yesterday. Indeed, indeed. So for some reason, Borning 3, and I apologise to any Norwegians who might be listening, my pronunciations of this are just going to wreck everything. Borning 3 has been picked up by Netflix and has been rechristened Asphalt Burning. And it... It kind of joins right in the middle of a story. So it starts off with Roy is racing up a beautiful Norwegian hill with his wedding party. And the the ceremony is the first one to the top gets the bride and he's at the front. Somebody crashes a GT86 drift car into a lake. There's a lot of American cars in this all through the uh, through the field but weaving through the traffic is a black and red tech art 997 turbo no 991 turbo sorry got to get the uh, the technicalities right on this podcast and he starts trying to race this car in his 70s mustang but a modern turbo s just romps past get to the top where the wedding party is waiting and this woman gets out of a, out of the Porsche, goes and says, I understand, the first person here gets the bride, I'm here to save you. And they all sort of gather around and go, but this is his wedding, and what have you. So, well, no, no, you know, I'm, I, I apparently am I, I'm her old roommate, and I'm here to save you from this man who isn't good enough for you. And one of them says, well, this isn't very sportsmanlike, he should have a rematch. And the woman goes, fine, I will see you at the Nürburgring in three days' time. And off they go. And that's basically the setup for the film. I'm sorry. <laughs> a woman goes, we'll have a rematch. I'll see you at the Nürburgring in three days' time. Basically. What wet dream of, of a screenwriter is this? <laughs> so she literally says, so she's German, which is a whole other thing we'll come to in a minute. She's, she, she says, fine, if there's going to be a rematch, it will be on my home turf. And then does that very Germanic pronunciation of Nürburgring, which sounds fantastic, and off they all go. And that's it. It's, that's, the, that's the setup for the film. That's basically the screenwriter going, how can I arrange for there to be a race on the Nürburgring in my film? <laughs> <laughs> and what happens, what follows of, from that is this whole group 
has to go from Norway to the Nürburgring, which apparently this woman can just like pick up the phone and book it. She even says at one point, it's like, I have the trek booked at four. I shall see you there. Not a moment later. And off they go. It is... So the series is known in, in, in Norway as the fast and the funniest, which, if you are Norwegian, may well be true. I'm sure the dubbing doesn't help and the way that they've, they've, they've scripted it. What's slightly confusing is the film is done in German, Norwegian and English. So the, the actors are speaking at some point all three of those languages. At some points they're dubbed into English and other points they're kept in the original language and subtitled if they're trying to make a point. Um, but yeah, so they basically drive through Scandinavia. At one point they pick up... Um, a hitchhiker at the side of the road who goes to see his his ex-wife. Because she's in Sweden, the house they pull up outside of has a Swedish flag hanging outside and a Volvo on the drive. Roy, the hero, races a guy called Lemmy, the Mustang killer of Hamburg, who looks like Lemmy from Motorhead. And he wins his car, and that's where the supercharger comes from. At one point, they even run into each other as well. So they're literally in a petrol station and, like... The women are trying to drive away and the men sort of turn up and they're all kind of having a bit, ah, so you're here, are you? Oh, that's the other thing. The dialogue is all sort of fitted around the um, the dialogue replacement. So it's like, we should go. Yes, let us let us go immediately for we have many miles to go. Yes, let's go. <laughs> there's, there's a fast moment with a dead body. There is the worst CGI I have seen in any film ever. It's hysterically bad. It's apparently they scanned the, the cars so they got all the right livery and they got the right design of the car and they jump off a bridge onto a container ship and the car just kind of bounces like a crap CGI model. Which is what it is. They've completely overdone the stunts as well. So you know that Fast and Furious thing, particularly in the later films, where if they drive off something, the car very slowly rotates in midair and you get that, that view of the driver kind of behind the wheel. Yes. And Paul Walker jumping off the bonnet midair or something like that. They're trying to do that, except the guy who plays Roy has this kind of really hard concentrating face the whole time. And it's it's just hilarious. It is just fluff. It's mindless fluff. At one point, I think an off-duty Norwegian police man who's a coach driver decides to start chasing Roy in his supercharged Mustang and has a blue flashing light for some reason. Is this all still taking place on the Nürburgring? Oh, no, no, we haven't got to the Nürburgring yet. Oh, right, so this, this is on the way this to the Nürburgring. This is the road trip. This is, this is Cannonball Run-esque capery all the way to the track. If all you care about is the Nürburgring, go to about an hour and ten minutes in, because they absolutely do the Nürburgring justice. They have a few problems with continuity, so that when they arrive there... There's this beautiful shot, the first shot that you see. If I say the Nürburgring sign, you'll know what I mean, but there's this famous illuminated red Nürburgring sign down the side of the complex, and there's this yellow Mustang slowly rolling past in the mist with this illuminated sign, and it looks fantastic. And it rolls through the old pits going up into the um, into the paddock, and it looks... I mean, the, the cinematography at this point is just brilliant. There's, like I say, there's a slight problem that they kind of roll through the the old pits and up the slope into the paddock area in the mist and rain. 
They then cut to the blazing sun of the pit lane. <laughs> they then go racing, and they leave the start-finish line on the Grand Prix track in bright blue saturated sunshine by the time they get to turn one on the grand prix track it's pissing it down with rain and misty that sounds like driven driven did that trick didn't it <laughs> well the thing is right so the thing with this is that they then do a full lap of the Nordschleife, and then as they come kind of come out of um, the chicane and over t13 and back onto the grand prix onto the start finish straight glorious sunshine again the cinematography of the cars is brilliant Misha Chirudin, who has been on this podcast before, he was actually one of the stunt drivers. And he did like a behind-the-scenes uh, vlog about it, which we'll put a link to in the show notes. They do such good work on the Nordschleife. They even had apparently a um, Lamborghini, possibly a Gallardo, but with the bonnet missing and the gimbal mounted in the front, in the frunk. Yeah. The cinematography is really good. They get the all the corners are in the right order, which I know sounds like a really stupid, petty thing. They've got helicopter shots where the circuit just looks amazing. They even, um, not quite understanding what the Polizei are like in Germany, they brought the hero car a bit early. And while they were waiting, they put it in the Touristfahrten uh, car park, which for a car with no registration and slick tyres, the police then came away and towed and impounded it. <laughs> from the public car park um, and they had to go and plead for it uh, back so they could use it in the film this is lightweight it's fluff it's silly it kind of is it's almost so bad it's good in some places I don't know like I say Norwegian comedy is not an area that I'm particularly specialised in Norwegian scenery looks fantastic at some point I want to go to Norway just for the scenery if you never see this film your life will be in no way altered if you like the Nürburgring, if you want to see really good cinematography, find it on Netflix, go to an hour and ten minutes in. You won't get the joke about the dead body later on, but you'll live. <laughs> Unlike the dead body. Unlike the dead body, indeed. And, yeah, it it's fun and it's fluff and it's a fun way to pass a couple of hours, but it's also a nice bit of Nürburgring porn if you are so inclined. Which I am, and I do want to see this, but I won't bother watching all the stuff at the start. I am just going to skip. Skip to the shiny. No, no, no. What I will do, just for you, because I consider you a friend, I will find you the timestamp for the ridiculous CGI bit as well. Oh, yeah, I want to see that too. Bad CGI is always funny. Yes. Some of the worst CGI I think I've ever seen. There is a movie about like a space prison break that's got <laughs> Guy Pierce in it from Neighbours and lots of other really good movies. It's a really fun movie. The script is hilarious. There's some really good lines in it. But there is a moment in like a CG motorcycle chase there that looks like they just got a computer game company to do it and just shoved it in the middle of a Hollywood movie. It's <laughs> dreadful. It's but, so bad. That's my gold standard for terrible CGI. Well, next episode, I will find you these timestamps. If nothing else, we'll, we will compare notes on how bad the CGI actually is and if I'm doing it justice or not. Lockout, that's the movie. If you haven't seen it, go and watch it. It's really good. Guy Pierce is excellent in it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's got some truly dreadful CGI in it. Anyway, let's move on because we're running a little long. So what has Henry Catchball been up to this week? In fact, this since last you spoke to him. Indeed, indeed, yes. It was um thank you for everybody who's commented on the intermission that I did with Henry. It was it was really good fun. We could probably do a follow up where we talk about only bicycles and nothing whatsoever to do with cars, but I suspect that's a slightly different audience. <laughs> Recently, as in I think two days ago as we record this, 
Henry did a review of the facelifted Jaguar F-Type P450, which absolutely passed the auto movie test in that I then went straight onto the configurator and started going, I think a darker colour would work on this. I see. I went I went the other way. I went, how what what can you get used F-types for these days? <laughs> but yes, it did get you it did get you looking. I do like the 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 what is and I hate to use the way that the badge is called the growler. <laughs> My God. I do like the fact they've got a growler. <laughs> Can't even say it. <laughs> uh, I do like the red growler. <laughs> the red growler on the front of the car. I think that looks amazing. How does anyone who works in Jaguar ever keep a straight face when they're talking about that? <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, hmm, yes. Also, uh, Henry has, now we are back in lockdown in the UK, Henry has resurrected the cupboard of lockdown, as I call it, where he basically seems to sit in his wardrobe and talk about car news, including the new singer uh, all-terrain concept? Um, the the spaceship-looking thing that can fly yeah, the, the sort of the, the, the modern nine five nine that uh, Singer have built in uh, collaboration with Tuthills, exactly. Uh, and the, you'll have seen it around the internet if you have a heartbeat and you have anything to do with automotive stuff on the web, because yes. it's been everywhere. It does look spectacular. It does, and it also made me then go back into the car section archive and find the time that Henry went to California and drove a Singer because. The cinematography in that is brilliant. I think the editing is fantastic. California light. It looks just proper Michael Bay awesome. Yeah. Okay, uh, your YouTube pick of the week. So this is a slightly odd one. Um, Matt Farah of The Smoking Tire does one-take films where he gets in a car and just drives it. For this one, he's in a new Land Rover Defender... And it's him and a friend talking as they drive along what looks like a pretty gnarly off-road trail. And they're just pointing it at the most obscene bits of this trail and having a chat as the car climbs up these impossible faces. And they talk about the car. It's really interesting, but it's also compelling to watch them drive this terrain with seemingly so little effort. Yeah, it's it's basically two guys chatting about how easy this, the car is, you know, how good the car is, how impressive it is, while not appearing to require anything of the actual car itself. It just the landing just goes where they point it with no effort. There's no mm. point at which it seems like it's going to get stuck. It's one of the most off-handedly brilliant displays of competence off-road I've ever seen. And there's been a load of reviews around of the new Defender, and it seems like its off-road capabilities are very much the real deal. Uh, mm. I would also mention um, Harry Metcalf's real-world review, which I think dropped yesterday, mm. of the P400 SE, which is horrendously expensive for what <laughs> it is, but would appear... How much do you want one? How much do you want very capable. I See, I don't think I want one, but I would... If I had money, I would buy one for my parents, like a shop. My dad's always had Land Rovers. I grew up driving Land Rovers. I would buy one for him if I had the money because he'd love it. Uh, and then I'd get to drive it every now and then. But they they are 
as far as I can see, tremendous. Uh, mm. We know someone that's bought one and, and he's having fun driving it down all the green lanes he can find, <laughs> trying to get it stuck and failing so far. So um, check this review out because it is a stark demonstration of just how competent this car is. And also, it's a great proper test of a Defender. I think if, you, if it had just been them driving along the canyon roads as they normally do, it would have missed the point. It, they're actually talking about the usability of it while demonstrating the usability of it. So that's really interesting. Yeah, the only way you can tell that the car is doing anything is the fact that you can hear them rocking <laughs> yes. from and see them rocking from side to side on the cameras and you can hear the sort of every now and then there'll be a clunk or a thunk as <laughs> something inside the car meets the door pocket or something. But <laughs> otherwise, the view out over, over the bonnet is very serene and unruffled as the car just takes whatever they throw at it. Um, my channel pick for this episode is a kind of a channel resurrection, really. It it's Will Buxton, who also has appeared on this podcast previously, and he's taken up the mantle. For those in the UK who watched Ted's Notebook during the last lockdown, he would basically walk around his local park and talk about the developments in F1. I love those. I'm really pleased to see that Will's doing something like that yeah. now, because Ted's one were fantastic. They were. and But what Will's doing is, rather than just being F1, he's actually talking about motorsport generally. So he'll go off and it's 20 minutes, half an hour, whatever it is, of F1 and WEC and Formula E and IMSA and whatever else. And it's really good. Um, the other thing that I have been pointed to recently, and I'm going to kind of cheat a bit here because that's kind of my thing, Haggerty in the US, which is a brand I keep hearing and I know nothing about what they do, they have a whole load of content on their YouTube channel. And if you are into your American car content, there is so much stuff there to to dig into. And I was introduced to it because uh, Matt Hardegree has done a series with, or is doing a series with, I was going to say Bearded Sheffielder, not that you'd know from his accent, Magnus Walker, talking about cars that he likes. I had problems with that show. I think that... If Magnus Walker's going to talk about style, I want him to talk about style and not just say he likes things with soul and ask people how much they pay for their car. I, I don't know. I watched um, I watched Urban Outlaw, the documentary that kind of launched him to fame, and it actually told me more than I knew about the man and what he he does and, and why he's got the reputation that he, he has. He's he's kind of interesting, even if it's not entirely my thing. But yes. If you are into your American, um, Americana, your American cars, new, old, car news, whatever, have a look at the Haggerty channel. There is so much in there, and I think a lot of it comes either from or with the assistance of Tangent Vector, which means that it looks gorgeous. Cool. What's your uh, video pick? Well, I could have gone on with any of the videos I've been watching quite recently, but I'm going to go with a, a video compilation called Group B, The Age of the Supercar, which is one of these kind of compilation things with sound laid over the top. Uh, and the reason I've chosen this is because I recently rewatched Top Gun in 4K Ultra HD and it looked amazing. And I was reminded of what a great soundtrack it was. And I happened to be going... I was on the Driver 61 channel and he had a thing about Group B, which didn't tell me anything I didn't already know. It's more a, hey, you know, there was this thing called Group B and the cars were really mad and people nearly got run over and then people died and it got banned. This is just like a highlights reel of all the most amazing things that Group B cars did overlaid with Highway to the Danger Zone. <laughs> Seriously? Yeah. 
and and that's all I'm going to say about that. It's amazing. It's got clips of Group B cars laying black lines from the exit of one corner to the breaking point of the next, which is a thing that rally cars should do and can't do anymore. But there you go. Um, would you watch? Would you watch anything if they put Highway to the Danger Zone over the top of it? Like, like a cooking program. Uh, yes, yes, definitely a cooking program. That way, it, it could always be made better. But uh, yes, I, I would check that out. Also, have a look at Driver Sixty One's Group B video, and just generally go to YouTube and type Group B, and then just pick a video at random. They're all great. Um, <laughs> and for the channel, I could pick two or three. I've really been enjoying Tyler Hoover's channel recently because jammy git that he is he lucked into <laughs> buying two lamborghinis at what i'm guessing is an absolute steal of a rate mm. and has been making videos kind of sharing his incredulousness that he was able to do this and sharing the you know the joy of having a 25th anniversary Countach and a Diablo Roadster in his fleet alongside his Murcielago Roadster. <laughs> Three Lamborghinis, honestly, YouTubers. But he's he's so down to earth with it. I've really been enjoying those. But I'm going to go with a channel I'm not sure we've mentioned much on this uh, podcast before, Sam Crack, who is an American guy who I think is actually a farmer, but does a lot of auction rebuilds. Now, he is somebody who... I didn't know about until about a, maybe three weeks ago when my YouTube recommended feed through what I'm guessing you're going to mention next. And I think it's probably a lot of people have ended up on his channel that way. Well, the reason I bring him up is because he's been trying to fix a BMW i8 recently. Now, he's done loads of great cars. He's got a, a long-running Ferrari 360 build that he had Rattarossa come over from the UK to try and help fix, and oh, that's yeah. still got issues. Um, but it's a, such a gorgeous colour and, and uh, that I, I'm, I'm fascinated by that. But this auction i8 that he's got had been diagnosed with an overheating engine and had been through loads of dealers, the last of which had said needs an engine replacement. Uh, and it sold for auction at like $30,000, which is way under what even a used i8 costs in the States. Mm. Uh, and I find the i8 a very intriguing car generally. I think it looks like a spaceship. I love the supercar doors on it. I think it's actually a hybrid that is interesting to drive because it, it gives you that kind of, you still got to do things with gears and stuff. Um, and he's trying to fix it. And he's just going down the rabbit hole of trying to diagnose why after driving for five minutes it overheats, even though there's air in the radiator. Sorry, there's, there's um, you know, the radiator's been replaced and all the water lines have been flushed and checked and so on um and i found this series quite fascinating because it's clear something very wrong and as he goes down the rabbit hole of fixing things it's clear that something is super super wrong it's just fascinating watching someone diagnose issues and and taking the leap of self fixing you know replacing a radiator on an i3 is not the job of a moment <laughs> and i sorry an i8 um is not the job of a moment or you know bleeding the, the the radiator like eight times also looks like i mean he makes it look dead easy like he's done it a hundred times but it's all done in a kind of ghetto style lots of his videos are kind of just done in a field on his farm <laughs> or you know under an awning on his farm He's got mechanical skills, um, but they're sort of displayed in an offhand manner. But the, yeah, this this series has got me intrigued and it's got me going, I wonder how much used i8s are in the UK? And the answer is too much still. Yes. But 
I'm very excited to see if he's able to get this one up and running again because I do think the i8 is a car that won't be repeated, much like the i3, actually. BMW have gone mm. in a completely different direction with their i-series now, um, one that is ugly and heavy and rubbish. And these cars were none of those things. And yep. so I'd highly recommend, if you haven't watched Sam Crack, go and watch this series on his i8 and then go back through the archives because he's got some great builds on there. The, the Like I said, the 360 Modena, I think, was where I was maybe introduced to him or perhaps perhaps some of the other ones. Um, mm. He's got like a Toyota that was a Domino's pizza delivery car yes. uh, and, you know, an Audi RS, um, RS5, I think, uh, an Audi R8 with a really trick army tricks exhaust on it that sounds really cool. <laughs> uh, a very purple Lambo because, you know, all YouTubers have to have Lambos. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yes, Sam Crack, and his name is also amusing. <laughs> and... On that entirely appropriate note, I think it's uh, it's time to call this long episode of Superchargers to an end. If you want to get in touch with us, you can get us on Twitter at AutoMoviePod. If you enjoy this episode, please do share it with your friends. If you don't already subscribe, please consider it. Moreover, if you like it, just tell people. We would really appreciate it and it would really help us grow. Right, we're going to go and put a non-running supercharger on top of our cars. Until next time, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>